Before we start today's show, I want to send you a raven about our newest Ringer podcast, Binge Mode. Binge Mode is a place where we dedicate ourselves to rewatching and giving you expert analysis on our favorite television shows. For the next six weeks, the Ringer's Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion, you know that guy, will be diving deep into HBO's Game of Thrones. Jason would tell you about it himself, but he has to rest his voice or his words will be wind. The first 10 episodes of Binge Mode are out now, covering all of season one of Game of Thrones. Every Monday, we'll be releasing a new batch of 10 episodes covering every Game of Thrones season to date. You can subscribe to Binge Mode now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Hello and welcome to Achievement Oriented, the Ringer's video game podcast. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for TheRinger.com. And on the other line, on the other side of the country, recording inside a literal closet for noise-related reasons, it's Jason Raymond Richard Concepcion. Wow. Hi, Jason. Hello. <laughs> How are you? Good. Hi. I'm fantastic. Yeah, and we are joined today by a friend of the podcast and a returning guest. He is the author of the forthcoming book, Blood, Sweat, and Pixels. He is also the news editor for Kotaku, although he's not just a news editor, he's also a newsmaker, which is why we are having him on today. It's Jason Schreier. Hi, Jason. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me back. Although it's kind of disappointing to be on the show because every Friday I'm always like, hey, what cool new interview are Ben and Jason going to have on the show this week? And now (laughs) it's just just me. Big disappointment. Yeah. Jason Schreier this week. (laughs) Sorry, everyone. (laughs) Well, we'll have to have you on again later this year because... Because you just couldn't hold this big article of yours closer to your book release as a, as book promotion. <laughs> yeah. You really should have waited and made it a afterward or something. But I guess DLC. it's too late. You already you already have a copy of your book. <laughs> I have seen you tweet. So we will get into that because this article is a lot like your book will be. We want to talk about a, a bunch of topics, but we're going to start with your big expose on the development of Mass Effect and drama. This is yeah. a, a classic Jason Schreier behind the scenes digging into a troubled development cycle and I think when Jason and I talked about Mass Effect and everyone talked about Mass Effect, we all had the feeling that it felt unfinished, which was odd because it had been in development for five years or so in in some form, and we weren't sure why it felt so rushed and unfinished, and we were all speculating about brain drain at Bioware and a lack of direction and frostbite engine problems, and a lot of that turned out to be true, but you actually got the details and got the facts and talked to a ton of developers who were involved in making this game at at Bioware and and have the full story. So we're going to dig into that. Just before we do, you did a a full episode of Split Screen, Kotaku's Mm -hmm. podcast, about a year ago with Patrick Klepek about video game journalism. And you talked at length in that article about why developers talk about these things to reporters. And I'd encourage everyone to go listen to that full episode. But can you give us just that snippet? How and why are you able to do this? Why, when video game developers are often so secretive, will these stories come out via you and and a few other reporters when people have things to to get off their chest, which is, I guess, kind of the answer to the question. Well, first of all, I don't remember that episode at all, because when <laughs> as, as you guys are well aware, when you record a podcast every week, oh, you yeah. just say things and then yeah. you're just doing it so much that you forget everything you say. So, so I hope I don't say anything now that contradicts with things that I said a year ago. Um, <laughs> 
but yeah, I, I mean, a story like this, uh, I guess there are two different types of like investigative stories in games journalism. And we at Kotaku have done a great deal of both. One is we're reporting on something before it's announced. And that's kind of the lamer version, but it also excites people. And it's also a, a service to people to get them information. But that's like the mm-hmm. type of stuff where, hey, the next Assassin's Creed game is going to be set in Egypt. Or like, hey, Fallout 4 is coming eventually and it's set in right. Boston or whatever. Like, um, we're going to find out about those things eventually one exactly. way or another. It's, it's nice to know sooner. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then so um, the developers who share that information might do it for any number of reasons. It could be because they're angry. It could be because they're disgruntled. It could be because they don't believe in the veil of secrecy that is shrouded over the video game industry and they don't care about NDAs. They just want to share cool stuff. So there could be a lot of reasons for that. But then this, the second type of investigative reporting in games is the stories that people would not find out anyway. So so those stories, I think people talk, well, so so oftentimes these stories come from me wanting to answer a question and then going after people and going through my own Rolodex, going after as many people as I know who worked on a specific game or who would be in a position to have information about a story and just telling them, hey, I'm trying to tell this story. Would you talk to me about it? Keeping them and offering to give them anonymity because usually they've signed NDAs and they're not specific specifically authorized to talk about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so which is kind of a bummer because when you don't know who's talking in a story, you have to just trust that the reporter is doing a good enough job to get that right. information and vet that information, et cetera, et cetera, but also kind of necessary. I guess as far as their motives, there could be a lot of things. There could be a lot of reasons that they would want to talk. I think the main one for this specific story on Mass Effect Andromeda was that the developers of Bioware put a lot into this game and had to work really hard just to get it finished, even though the product didn't turn out to be great and even though it wasn't the game that everyone wanted it to be. I think that a lot of people who worked on it felt like it would be beneficial for people to know what they went through and kind of sympathize with them and understand all of the hardships and trials and tribulations that they they faced along the way. So I think that's the biggest reason. There were definitely some people I spoke to who were kind of disgruntled and pointing fingers and and wanted to just vent for a while. And a lot of that stuff I actually didn't use in the story because it's not mm-hmm. part of what I do when I'm reporting this sort of thing is That's try to... Shit. Yeah. It's, it's just <laughs> present it like... Yeah, yeah. Just put in as much gossip as possible, no matter yeah. what. No, it's just like, put, like uh, present it as fairly as possible and not allow people to point fingers anonymously. So that's one aspect of it. But yeah, I, I think it was just beneficial for the studio. And it's too bad. I, I gave EA and Bioware a, a long heads up. I told them about a week before publishing that I was going to do the story and I would love to get some people on the record. They eventually said no, but I think this is a type of story that even though EA and Bioware might not be super pleased about kind of their dirty laundry getting aired, I think a lot of people are overall pleased that now the general public will know. Mm. And if you mm-hmm. look back at Destiny, actually, which we've talked about before, um, the narrative of that game has changed since we posted our big story about what happened in the story yeah. reboot, how that game just kind of, the entire story was scrapped a year before it came out. And I think that has helped characterize and like like 
contributed to the general narrative behind Destiny and Destiny fans point to that article a lot and say, oh, hey, this this thing happened because Bungie had to deal with this or like yeah. Bungie's tools are super slow. So that's why they can't produce content as quickly as everyone would like. And I think a similar thing is and I think Bioware, a lot of people at Bioware were hoping that a similar thing would happen with this, where instead of the narrative around Mass Effect Andromeda just being like, oh, hey, look at those lazy developers who couldn't animate these faces properly. Now it's like, oh, no, there's a lot more. There are a lot yeah. more factors contributing to what actually happened. <laughs> you failed to expose the single animator who was responsible <laughs> right. for all of the problems. <laughs> yes. Uh, the entire <laughs> article should have just been, this person <laughs> is responsible. You should send right. him and her death threat. <laughs> right. Uh, so speaking of those factors, you really paint a picture of a perfect storm of events from mm-hmm. employee overhaul, kind of uh, differences in work culture between studio, between the interior studios of Bioware's interior studios, changing technologies, changing to a new engine. Which one of those problems do you think is the core problem? Or is it just merely that, like, is it if, if they had kept it like at Edmonton, or if it is there a, is there one problem that could have been fixed that could have fixed all the problems, or is it really just everything happening at once was kind of unavoidable? Um. Well, so I'm glad you asked that because the answer to that is actually no. There is no one problem, and I right. think that's a big part of this story. And one of the things I was trying to convey is that game development is so complicated, and there's so many moving pieces and yeah. so many different factors that contribute to every game. Like we don't even think about it. I, I've never tried to make a video game, but just based on research and reporting, just the amount of stuff I've heard about all the com- complexities that go into yeah. making a giant 3D open world game like uh, Mass Effect, where you have to think not only about um, the way everything looks, like uh, say you're looking at a character, right? So we are immediately inclined to be like, oh, this character's facial animation is weird, right? But the things we're not thinking about are like, how is that character being rendered on the screen through the game's graphical engine? And what's going on behind the scenes? And how many polygons are made up in this character? And what kind of animation rig does it have? And what kind of joints does it have? And all these other crazy technical factors, not even mentioning like the memory of the system and how it might run from different PC configurations. And man, there's just so many freaking factors. That, <laughs> yeah. First of all, After I'm glad I don't this, have like, to make video games. Uh, yeah. I like I can't believe games are ever good. After yeah. Reading it's this article. it's <laughs> remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> it's unbelievable. It's hard to make that. Yeah, it's hard to believe the games are even finished, let alone good. Um, so the the larger point to address your question, Jason, is that it is the perfect storm of all these factors. And I think a lot of games, I mean, just, just based on the book that I wrote, which covers 10 games and all of them went through many of the factors like this that I cover in this article, this was just kind of the reason that it didn't turn out to be as good as people wanted it to be was not one reason, but all of these reasons just contributing to this product that when through hell. And I think maybe there are ways that they could have made things better. Maybe there are high-level decisions that if had been made earlier, maybe if they had made... So one of the big things I talk about in the story is the rescope where they changed from the early vision of having procedurally generated No Man's Sky-style planets to the version we see today. And maybe if that had happened earlier, they wouldn't have run into as many problems. (laughs) But 
You could also say, what if about all the other stuff? What if they had hired more animators? What if they had put all the development in one studio instead of doing it across three different studios? What if they had gotten more time on the game late in development? I, there's so many different like hypothetical situations, and there's so many factors contributing to why this game turned out to be mediocre that I, I don't there just never is one answer. And that's why when you see a lot of like YouTube videos and speculation and sometimes people even talking to people who worked at Bioware and painting their own picture, you often see those people saying, oh, the animations are bad because of this. Or like, this game turned out bad because of this. But those answers just simplify the situation to the point where they are inaccurate. So if someone tells you, oh, the animations in Mass Effect Andromeda are bad because the animators are, are or they didn't have enough animators or because they outsourced it or because Bioware is full of social justice warriors. Those are never the right answer. The answer... That's my favorite. Yeah, that's the best one, right? <laughs> <laughs> the answer is always like all of the above. Well, maybe except for the social justice warriors part. But it's always like, it's always just tons and tons of factors contributing to this complexity of game development. And it's just like you have this maelstrom of, of all these different things. And sometimes at the end of this this hellfire of game development, they come out with something great and sometimes it's something bad. And from what I've heard from developers, oftentimes they don't even know until the end result whether their game is going to turn out great. I mean, one of the stories that I cover in my book is The Witcher 3, which obviously is one of the greatest games in recent memory. But those developers didn't even know that it would turn out to be great. Uh, they were concerned the whole time that it wasn't going to be big enough, which is ridiculous to look at now. Like you look at that game, it's like 200 hours long if you do everything. And and they were really concerned that it wasn't going to be big enough. So yeah, long to to summarize this whole rant, making games is really friggin' hard. <laughs> One of the things that seemed the most disheartening about the process was uh, mm -hmm. something uh, that they call regression. You refer to as regression in your story and the developers refer to as regression, which is like the polishing process of certain pieces as everything is supposed to be coming together. And as they would do that, finish uh, cinematic, finish uh, some kind of graphical piece and then put it aside, they'd come back to it later to find that it had been changed in some way. And so they'd mm -hmm. have to do work again that they had previously thought to be finished. How did that occur? Well, so that is a lot of technical stuff. And I think uh -huh. there are, just like my answer before, there are a lot of reasons it, occur, it could occur. So to try to simplify this and apologies if there are any game developers out there who are going to listen to this and just like facepalm and be like, geez, you were totally getting all this terminology wrong. But so yeah. say I am working on a cinematic scene, like I'm a cinematic designer and I'm making a, a cutscene in a game, right? Which is a part of a game where you lose control because they're at the video part, basically, a non-interactive part of the game. So say I finished work on this cutscene and I've just animated all the characters and made sure the camera is in the right place and all the dialogue is syncing up right and it looks and sounds great. And then I turn around and move on to the next thing and then I go back to that and it's all broken, right? So there could be a number of reasons for that. It could be because an animator somewhere else on the team, maybe in another country, maybe in another studio, um, who's also working on the game, they change some high-level like animation codec or some 
aspect of the database that changes the way things function across the board. And now suddenly all of the cu- characters in my cutscene are facing in the wrong direction. Um, huh. It could be some, because some lighting change. It could be because some other part of the game somewhere else just affected this in some way. It could be because the character models change. There are just so many different possibilities. And I think this happens on all video game projects in some form or another. I think on Andromeda, the developers had told me that it was particularly bad and that they had experienced this so-called regression, is what they call it, to an extent that they hadn't before. But yeah, there are all of these technical factors just interacting with one another in a way that, I mean, the reason that you see so many glitches and bugs in games is because of this complexity, because every time you watch a cutscene, it's this giant collaboration of like animation, light, modeling, rigging, uh, camera movement. So when just one of those things is tweaked in some small way or one of those things is malfunctioning because some other code elsewhere in the game may be developed by another team entirely is just interacting with it in a way that causes things to misbehave. It could just be a recipe for disaster. And and it's just this level of complexity that is unfathomable to us lowly writers who are watching and observing and, and voice and just spend our day talking about games and giving our opinions on these giant complicated beasts. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed the part where you talked about how a lot of these problems stemmed from just how much conference calls suck and video conferencing sucks. <laughs> yeah, and that's relatable, you, right? <laughs> when you have like multiple time zones and you've got people in different places and uh-huh. you have to coordinate them. And it's interesting because you said that Bioware isn't really set up for this in the way that, say, Ubisoft, which has studios all over the world, would be with an army of producers and people who can schedule things and make sure everyone's tech is working at the right time and get everyone in the right room and Bioware maybe didn't anticipate the the difficulty of doing that. Yeah, I just want to, well, just to clarify a little bit, I mean, they're like a professional large studio. They definitely have Mm -hmm. producers and stuff, but I think maybe they just didn't have as much experience in that field or aren't as, don't have as many people as Ubisoft does. I mean, also the other aspect of that is that Ubisoft, from what I've heard, I, I believe the way Ubisoft functions is that they have this big core creative team in Montreal and often that is kind of the brain trust making decisions and then sometimes their games are developed in other studios but for a game like Assassin's Creed a lot of the core development and core creative ideas will happen in Montreal and then they'll assign specific parts of each game to other studios and also they have just so many layers of producers they might have a producer and then a producer for all the producers and then like a producer on top of that it's just layers upon layers of people coordinating and handling logistics and and making sure that the people in Singapore who are making hats for all the soldiers uh, know exactly what types of hats to make um, mm-hmm. that's the other thing about Ubisoft is that they're just so specialized that they have animators who might be they have, I've heard stories about like like one guy whose only job is making all of the rocks on a particular game <laughs> and like that's the type of thing that happens it's crazy. And, and I don't think Bioware had that sort of setup. That said, I, I don't want it to seem like, like, I don't think this is a studio that is just like full, full of naive, like bumbling fools. Like, I think they mm-hmm. knew what they were getting into, but even the best of us can run into these giant communication issues. I mean, I, I'm just thinking about Kotaku. Like, we have a staff of people who are all across the world. And mm-hmm. for us, coordinating meetings, like, we might spend half an hour dealing with like life size conferencing <laughs> and just yeah. wasting 
so much time. So I imagine that 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 is only exacerbated when you are in in crunch mode on a video game. Yeah, and it was fascinating to read about the original ambitious, maybe over ambitious plans for the No Man's Sky version of Mass Effect. Because mm-hmm. when No Man's Sky came out, I think a lot of people compared it to. Bioware-type games or Bioware-type planets because the tech was impressive and it was great to go seamlessly from planets to space, but then everything felt empty and there wasn't enough to do because it was all procedurally generated. And Bioware, it sounds like, was trying to combine the vastness of a game like No Man's Sky with the very hand-designed, detailed nature of the typical Bioware game where it feels like everything has had some human attention to it and Mm -hmm. they couldn't pull that off. And maybe it's not possible for anyone to to pull that off, which makes me wonder what the future of games like that and technology like that is, if we'll ever be able to meld those two things so that a game could be enormous and procedurally generated, but still feel like it's had that attention to detail. Yeah, that's such an interesting conceptual problem. And I think there's like this, there's sometimes a conflict, I think, at game studios between the more technical minded people, the engineers who just want to push the limits of technology and just do the craziest things they can, like infinitely generated planets. And then the more design and story minded people who who want to focus on design and story over over everything else. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, this game, I think, set out from the beginning to be a game about exploration. And I think that maybe they spent too much time in pre-production on high-level ideas that didn't wind up working, and they just made these big cuts too late. It's interesting. So a lot of people told me that they had prototypes, kind of No Man's Sky prototypes up and running, such as space flight and landing on planets and flying around and these procedurally generated stuff, but it just didn't turn out fun, which is another fascinating part of game development. Like in in traditional software development, when you're working on a program for like a a Microsoft Word app or like an app on your phone or something like that, you have a schedule in place and oftentimes things will run behind schedule or things will take you longer than you needed to. But overall, you know that you're driving towards one goal and it's kind of uh, whatever your goal is, whether it's to, to make a word processing tool or like to make an app that orders food online or whatever. You have one specific goal in mind and you know that eventually you're going to get there and it's going to work. But with games, it doesn't just have to work. It also has to be fun. And mm-hmm. that kind of amorphous but concept of fun. Yeah, does it though? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> or it could just be a walking simulator. Sure. Right, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but with most games, it's like you, you have this idea in mind and you want to get there and then you have to see if you can pull it off. But then even if you pull it off and you spend a year designing something, at the end of the day, if you make it, you have no way of knowing it's going to be fun until you've gotten it and tried it. Because there's so many ideas that seem cool on paper, but then just don't actually work when you're playing with them. So with this, it was like, it just cost them a lot of time because they spent a lot of time focusing on the stuff that turned out to not be very fun, which has is something that always happens in AAA development. I mean, you hear all the time about ideas that are discarded because they don't work. One story that I wrote about in my book is uh, Uncharted 4. And they were in pre-production for a very long time and they played around with a bunch of prototypes and crazy mechanics and ideas. At at one point they were playing around and here's a a brief spoiler from my book. Uh, (laughs) They were playing around with this idea for a ballroom dancing mechanic where you would kind of 
press buttons, sort of like a, a rhythm mini game. It was like part of this, uh, part of one scene. You guys have played Uncharted 4, right? Yes. So the scene where you're in the Italian auction house and you're trying to uh, steal the one thing. Yeah. Um, you were going to, as Drake, be like dancing with Elena in the ballroom and you guys would have to keep moving closer and closer to this thing and try to steal it. And so you had to do this rhythm mini game and they were playing around with it and it they said that people told me it was fun for a little while but like it just didn't work and there can be these situations uh, as we saw with Mass Effect Andromeda where developers spend all this time on these concepts that just seem cool and like seem like fun ideas but just don't wind up working for whatever reason and and that's (laughs) yet another reason that game development is so complicated and difficult all right let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor and we'll be right back with more Dollar Shave Club is the smarter choice. Get a great shave at a great price, conveniently delivered right to your door. It's an awesome life hack and a no-brainer choice. You no longer have to schlep to the store to buy a cheap disposable razor that gives you a cheap shave or spend a fortune on razors with gimmicky shaving tech you don't need. No fetch quests required, no crafting required. And when you use your Dollar Shave Club executive razor with their Dr. Carver Shave Butter, the blade just gently glides, giving you such a smooth shave. Dr. Carver Shave Butter is transparent for a more precise shave. It helps prevent ingrown hairs and fights razor bumps. And you too can make the smarter choice by joining Dollar Shave Club. For a limited time, new members get their first month of the Executive Razor with a tube of Dr. Carver's Shave Butter for only $5 with free shipping. After that, razors are just a few bucks a month. That's a $15 value for only 5 bucks. In your first month's box, you get a weighty handle, a full cassette of four cartridges, and a tube of shave butter. And after your first month, replacement cartridges ship automatically at their regular price. You don't even have to blow into these cartridges to get them to work. There are no hidden fees and no commitments. You can cancel anytime you like, and you can only only get this offer at dollarshaveclub.com slash achievement. Again, that's dollarshaveclub.com slash achievement. So let's get back to Jason to talk more Mass Effect, a little bit of Netflix for games, and a quick E3 preview. One of the things that's really interesting about the developmental process is it seems like developers don't even know what's wrong with their game until like the 99th yard. You know what I mean? Like it like until it's go time and it's very close to launch is it was it seems like the case with this game as well, where they knew that it was a uh, arduous process and that things were kind of bad and it's always hard. But it seems like at the end, as all the kind of behind schedule stuff started to hit the, the people who are farther down the development chain is when people started to go, oh, shit. (laughs) Uh, Was that the case? I I think they knew that they were having, that this was was a a production cycle that was unusually tough just because they had to do so much of it at the last, in the last year and a half as a result of the pre-production just being so long and the cuts being made so late in development. But one of the things about making games and that whole fun factor idea is that you can't really know whether, or it's hard to know whether something is fun until it's all implemented. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, let's say you have a shooting mechanic in a video game, right? Like Destiny, for example. Um, When you're shooting a gun in Destiny, would that be, would that feel nearly as good without the sound or the visual effects or the little hit point numbers that come up every time you blow up an alien's head? Um, Mm -hmm. Those are all tiny little factors. And oftentimes those don't come in until very late in the process of development. So there's always a hope and there's always a reality that things don't coalesce and you don't really know whether something's working.
working until as late as possible because you've gotten all that stuff implemented and finally it's all meshing together and it's all working and it's all all out there and and implemented and suddenly you're shooting those guns and hey that sound effect is contributing to this and hey you can see the graphical effects and the the way that like the cabal's head pops uh when you when you shoot off his uh when you shoot him in the eyeballs so that stuff all contributes to whether or not something winds up feeling fun and that's the reason that that oftentimes you don't really know what you have until late in development in this particular case i think that i mean first of all i imagine a lot of them just were heads down working on their own stuff and didn't think or realize whether the whole game was working or not i think they were just trying to get it out the door like ship something but yeah but that question is so hard to answer especially when you're in there working on it every single day like uh, uh how often have you guys written something or, or recorded yeah. something where you have no idea because you're spending so long on this and you're so kind of blinded to whether it's good or not? And <laughs> I think it's really tough to kind of zoom out and look at your own work and know whether it's any good or not, which is, so what happened with Mass Effect is, well, so all AAA games hire consultants to come on and do what's called mock reviews where they'll write up, uh, the mock reviewer will write up a whole report and predict a Metacritic score and all that jazz. And the Mass Effect and guys, they actually hired those mock reviewers and they came in and said, hey, you're going to have a Metacritic of around 80 to 85. And I think Bioware was fine with that. They were like, okay, that's not the greatest in the world, but it's fine. We do that, have this kind of foundational Andromeda game. And now that we've built all these initial things in the first game, now for the sequel, we can make it even better. Sort of like what happened between Mass Effect 1 yeah. and Mass Effect 2, because Mass Effect 1 wasn't the best game ever. It was, It had a lot of issues. And then Mass Effect 2 came out and iterated on everything that worked really well in Mass Effect 1 and was just incredible. So they were hoping that would happen. But then I think what one of the reasons that this game, Andromeda's narrative, has become what it has is because the game was released on EA Access a few days before it actually came out and people started posting GIFs of the animation and that became the whole story around it. I think that was a large contributor. I mean, don't get me wrong, it still has the game still has a lot of issues. There are a lot of writing issues, a lot of bad writing, a lot of I, I don't know. It just feel for me it was just boring to play. Like I stopped after five or six hours just because I wasn't enjoying it and I just saw no reason to keep playing. But yeah, I think that just the internet loves hating Bioware for one reason or another. And <laughs> this game became just this big target. And it also couldn't have helped that it was released next to Breath of the Wild, Horizon yeah. Zero Dawn, <laughs> right. and Nier. And it's like three of the greatest games in, in recent history are all coming out right next to this game. So all that contributed and it comes out and it gets a Metacritic of like the low 70s or something like that. By the way, I personally hate Metacritic and I'm glad because we don't have to use it at Kotaku because we don't use review scores. I just, I can't stand yeah. review scores. But I want to ask you about that. Yeah. Well, I, first of all, I hope that that pre-release flaming that you're talking about doesn't encourage other companies to go the Bethesda route and let no one right. play their games before it comes out less well, I someone think that dislike was, the it. The biggest but... reason for that wasn't reviewers. It was just that fans right. could play it on, on the Xbox Early Access program. Yeah, right. So as for the, the review scores and the specter of Metacritic, which has become this thing that companies often judge their success by and developers are given bonuses or not based on what the Metacritic score is, and it all seems somewhat arbitrary. And mm -hmm. Kotaku hasn't given review scores for quite some time. And when I read a Kotaku review, I never find myself at the end of it thinking, man, I wish there were just a number with a decimal point at the end of this to sum up everything I read. I don't miss that at all. But at the same time, I 
do find that it's kind of consumer friendly in a way to have someone giving review scores, right? Because like, I don't have time to play everything or even close to everything. And if I really care about a game and I'm interested, then I will take the time to read the full article and find out what is good or bad about it or what people think about it. But if I'm just sort of trying to decide between 10 games and I have time to play two or something like there is some benefit to a wisdom of crowds number that you can just kind of look at like Mass Effect Andromeda ended up with a 70 for PS4 which feels about right right like it's you know kind of an okay passable game it's a it's a 70 it feels like a 70 that feels like the collective hive mind of the internet arrived at roughly the right number and so I would say that, you know, you should definitely take the time to read and find out the nuance there. But I also kind of like having that quick number that I can refer to. Do you see any benefit to having that? I could do a whole podcast just on review scores. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I won't get super in, in depth there. But in short, Metacritic has a lot of problems. I, I wrote a large article on Kotaku. You can find it. It's called Metacritic Matters is the, are the first two words of the headline. And mm-hmm. it's basically about all of the systemic problems with Metacritic and the way that publishers use it. Basically, giant game companies use that number in ways, like abuse that number and use that number Mm -hmm. in ways that should never be used. And there are a lot of problems with it. I mean, one, for example, is that if a game has a wide range of critical opinions and gets a bunch of tens and then also a bunch of ones, it will wind up somewhere in the middle and just the Metacritic score will treat it like an average game when really it might have just been a polarizing game. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, there, there are a whole lot of issues with Metacritic that, that I could get into, but but we'll save that for another show. Um, <laughs> but the point of, of this whole thing was that like as a result of that Metacritic score, I think the the studio is in trouble and was hurt. And I think EA saw that and Bioware saw that and, and decided to kind of scale down is the best way to put it. Bioware Montreal, which is their studio in Montreal that led development on Andromeda. And put Mass Effect on ice. We're not going to see a Mass Effect game for a long time. I think they were planning on moving into a sequel right away, but that those plans changed after the reception to Andromeda and after Andromeda came out and disappointed people. And so all of those people, a bunch of those people were transferred to EA Motive to work on Star Wars Battlefront 2, and other people are working on BioWare's other games, New Dragon Age and their new IP. And yeah, uh, just as a result of the Metacritic score and the reception and the fan reception, it's it's we might not see another Mass Effect game for a long time, if ever. Um, yeah. Well, that's unfortunate because, I mean, you know, I think in this case, the game probably did deserve that score. But it also seems like if they were to start on a sequel right now, it yeah. wouldn't have all of the problems that this would have. Like, it seems like they mm-hmm. got a lot of the growing pains out of the way. There were a lot of aspects of the game that worked fine. Like the combat was okay. The The problems were largely in the writing and the story and, and the aspects of it that were really rushed. So now that they got that out of the way and sort of built this engine that could handle more or less what they wanted to do, it seems like this would be the time to, to make another good game. But I can understand why I guess the negative reaction to this one would, would preclude that. Here's the thing about them deserving that score. I mean, first of all, one of the reasons that I dislike review scores so much is because they feel so meaningless to me because a seven to one person means something totally yeah. different than a seven to another. A seven at Edge magazine is a good score, while a seven at IGN is a mediocre score. 
score. So those numbers, just because they don't translate to any sort of meaningful language, they don't actually mean anything. And a 70 is seen as a bad game as opposed to an okay game. The other aspect of that is that I think that the Metacritic score is often influenced by what's happening during the day that reviews come out. So mm-hmm. The game has changed a lot over the past few weeks as they patch things and fix bugs and fix animations. And now that Metacritic score remains because it's kind of a snapshot of what the game was like in March. But today it's totally different. And the Mm -hmm. same thing happens with all these games like Destiny and The Division and all these games that are changing constantly after release. But their Metacritic score can't reflect that just by nature. And so these games that had terrible scores at launch might be way better now. And there's no way to reflect that on Metacritic, which is yet another problem. Um, The other thing is that because of the context of that, because I I, I do think that one of the reasons it got lower scores is because it was released at the worst possible time and because it was influenced by a narrative surrounding the game before it actually came out and before reviews actually came out people were ready to hate on it even even like totally separate from the whether it was actually good or not people were ready to jump on it and people Mm -hmm. were ready for a game that would just become this whipping boy for everything and then it's an interesting contrast to Dragon Age Inquisition which got really good scores in one game of the year and I think that game while I enjoyed that game quite a bit. I thought it was very good. It was also released at a time where there were no other RPGs for the PS4 and the landscape in general was pretty barren in 2014. There weren't a lot of great games released that year. And so I think that game got higher Metacritic scores than it would today. Um, Mm -hmm. If that game was released at the same time as Mass Effect Andromeda, like if you took those two games and swapped places, but they were the same exact game, I think Mass Effect would have a higher score and Dragon Age would have a lower score, which itself speaks to the uselessness of the these scores because uh, who cares like when you're looking at a game and deciding whether to buy you don't really care how it compares but I think reviewers who decide these scores just naturally are affected by things around them because no one can do this in a vacuum and I think that can be useful when you're reading a review and it talks about the circumstances surrounding a game but in a score that's isolated and taken on an aggregation website like Metacritic it's completely useless and, and actually harmful because these companies are making decisions based on Metacritic and it's a problem. I mean, the other the other aspect is that Metacritic has its own kind of weird, shady formula that it uses right. for yes. weighting scores that it doesn't publicize at all. And also, who if you look through Metacritic, sometimes you'll find sites that you've never heard of. Oftentimes, college kids who just have their own website on the side for fun, or like hobbyists who have other day jobs, but write for review websites just to get free games or whatever. And there's no way of knowing what else is on there. So yeah, I, I, we've digressed a little bit into to my me ranting about Metacritic, which I'm always happy to do. But yeah, that site is just so full of so many systemic problems that I think it's a real shame that the video game industry relies upon it so much and uses it for making creative decisions and bonuses and all that. Just to steer it back to Bioware and Mass Effect, I think the question that people might settle on is why not delay the launch? Mm-hmm. Red Dead uh, Redemption 2 recently delayed until spring 2018. It's been, it seems like their delays have been slightly more common since kind of like a spate of highly publicized broken games and or bugs in recent years. Why not, why not just delay the thing? It seems like they knew early enough in the development process that this was possibly going to be fucked up in a in a way that's out of scale with uh, how fucked up games normally are mm-hmm. why not why not just push it back 
So a few things here. First of all, it was delayed twice, actually, mm. if not more than that, uh, twice as far as I know. Once from, I think they were originally, like way back in the day, they were planning on releasing it in 2015, and then they bumped it to 2016, and then bumped it again to early 2017. So that had been done already a few times. And I think if you look at pretty much any game, pretty much every game, I don't think there's a single video game released in the past decade that hasn't been delayed at least once, whether internally or externally, or whether it was publicized or not whether internally or just like uh, or released to the public. The other aspect of that is that if they were to delay the game and they were already going through this brutal crunch of working six day, seven day weeks and 16 hour days or whatever, that would just mean more months of that, which is it's the terrifying prospect, I think, to a lot of people who had this end game in sight. And actually on Dragon Age Inquisition specifically, I've heard this about a few games, but on Dragon Age Inquisition, which is covered in my book, there was a delay. First, there was a year-long delay, and then there was a delay from, I think they were planning on releasing in October, and they delayed it six weeks to fix bugs and polish and really get the game in the shape they needed to get it into. But that also meant six more weeks of just this brutal crunch for the people on the development team, which can be very draining and demoralizing. So that's another aspect. And then the third thing is because they brought in those mock reviewers and got these, this Metacritic target of 80 to 85, I think they didn't expect that people would hate the game as much as they did or people would find it as mediocre as they did. I think they did expect it to be like like 80 to 85 quality game, whatever that means, but just like a good game, maybe not a great game, maybe not as good as great as the first three Mass Effects, but they thought it would be something that came out, people liked it, people had some criticisms, and then they could come out and say, okay, we're going to look at these criticisms, take them into account for the second Andromeda game, and make that the Mass Effect 2. So I think that all of those factors, just going into the calculus of it, led to them deciding not to delay it. I don't know for sure if like they even had the option. EA, I think, is pretty good about letting developers delay games when they need to. So I think if if Bioware decided, hey, we really need to delay this thing, then EA would let them. So I, I don't know. I was not privy to those high-level decisions, uh, studio management decisions when I was reporting this, but I think it would be allowed if they wanted to, but I, I, I don't think that anyone at that point wanted to. The other thing is that they are putting a lot of stock into their new IP, which I believe will be announced at E3. So we should see that soon and hopefully that's really cool. But yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think there were a number of factors contributing to that. And last thing I wanted to ask you about from this story before we close with a, a couple of quick things unrelated to it. You talked about the differences between the engines, Frostbite, EA's engine designed by DICE, and then the Unity engine and the Unreal engine. And that was the part of this that I think sounded the most hellish to me, just having to build a game in Frostbite that wasn't really designed to work with that engine or certainly wasn't before Dragon Age. And we hear these names of the engines all the time, but for us non-developers, we might not necessarily know what the differences are, or what the strengths mm -hmm. and weaknesses are, but you summarized it really well. So can you explain broadly what the drawbacks and, and advantages of Frostbite and the other big engines are? Yeah. So this is something that I've been reporting a lot on, and I come to this from as a non-developer. So I've never worked with these engines. And and again, my, my technical know-how is pretty limited. But Frostbite is this engine that is super powerful and was developed by a company called DICE in Sweden for making the Battlefield games. And well, 
just to zoom out for a second, an engine, and a lot of people use this term without really understanding what it means, an engine is essentially a collection of code that developers can use over and over again for making games. So an engine might be comprised of a graphic renderer or like a physics system that governs how gravity works in the game and how collision works in the game and all these other things that you wouldn't want to keep rebuilding every time you want to start a new game. So it's kind of like a starting point for a game. And then over time, an engine will become attached to tools and become attached to other systems that the developers start using. So if you're making a Battlefield game in DICE, for example, you might want a really good system for shooting and and the way that works. So you attach that to your engine. So when Bioware first got Frostbite, which was in 2011 or so, they didn't, the engine didn't have any, wasn't capable of making RPG stuff, right? Because if you're making a shooter, you don't really need an inventory system. You don't need a party management system. You don't need a robust save system where you could save multiple times because all you have is checkpoints. So when Bioware first started using Frostbite on Dragon Age Inquisition, they had to start from scratch on a lot of these things. And this is actually really well detailed in in my book in the Dragon Age Inquisition chapter. And I heard all about it from the folks who worked on the game is they just had to start from scratch on all these things. And like there were parts of that game that were not functioning properly until the last months of development. Like there was one developer who was telling me that he was trying to test out a scene with Iron Bull, the party member from Dragon Age Inquisition. And then he realized like probably eight months before the game shipped that you couldn't actually get Iron Bull on your party. It wasn't working properly. So <laughs> this engine is just, I think it's really powerful and really capable of doing a lot of really cool things, especially graphically, but it doesn't have RPG systems that Bioware needs and uh, any RPG company would need to get a game like that running, as opposed to the tools that they had been using before, which they had kind of, they, they were using the Unreal Engine for Mass Effect, which is a popular third-party engine, and they had been using their own engine called Eclipse for other games besides that. And those engines just kind of over time were, they grafted on all these tools and stuff they needed to do in order to make RPGs. I think they had similar problems with the first Mass Effect when they first started using the Unreal Engine because they also had to build a lot of that stuff from scratch. And yeah, they ran into a lot of these problems on Dragon Age Inquisition. And just because of the timing of Mass Effect Andromeda's development when that started, they also needed to start building new stuff when they were doing the newest Mass Effect. Okay, so switching gears just briefly before we wrap up here, you've written recently about a couple Netflix-like game services that either have just debuted or are about to. Microsoft's Xbox Game Pass, which Mm -hmm. is uh, access to 100-plus games, mostly older games, that you can just subscribe to the service and download them and play them freely. And then Nintendo is debuting its online service for the Switch, which I think a lot of people are pleasantly surprised that it might not be terrible and um, (laughs) (laughs) might actually allow access to a a bunch of games concurrently and you might be able to play them at your leisure as opposed to the initial plan which sounded like it might be one game a month or something like that so Uh Do you think that there is going to be kind of a killer app Netflix for gaming? Is that something that the market needs? What are the obstacles either technologically or or licensing-wise? Yeah, I mean, and then Sony has PlayStation Now, which I don't know if you guys have used it, but that's 
the big streaming service for PS3 mm-hmm. and PS4 I games. Yeah, but the problem with that is that streaming kind of sucks because you're relying on your your bandwidth, and if you don't have a great internet connection, or you also uh, a little expensive, to be honest. Yeah, it was it was way worse when it first launched. Yeah. Um, now it's got like a monthly fee, right? I forget what it what it is a month, but um, when it first came out, it was a la carte, and you could get a game for like there were some ridiculous prices. I think it was like you could get something for 24 hours for like $5 or $6 or something like that. It was, it was ridiculous. But yeah, I, I don't know about the infrastructure or the technical problems facing that, but that's always been my dream for Nintendo's virtual console. And, and right now this service seems okay. They're saying right now that it's just going to be NES games with possibly the possibility of adding Super Nintendo games after that, which kind of sucks. I mean, as I, I said to much controversy last time we talked or a couple times ago nes games suck um <laughs> right. and super nintendo games are way better yeah. <laughs> but uh your childhood is shit exactly <laughs> exactly um so i would love to see a system where you pay like x amount per month or per year or whatever and you get access to the entire library of old nintendo games from super nintendo to n64 to gamecube to wii and even wii u but i think that might be a pipe dream that's my that's always been my fantasy um mm-hmm. similar on PlayStation with PS1 and PS2 and PS3 games. I think the ideal way to do it is to let you download a game and then have a timer on it. And I think this would be technically possible is you have a timer on it where you have to check in to the servers like once every 24 hours or something like that. So you have to go online and let Nintendo check your game and then it will check if you have a, a service that you're like an active member of the service. And if you're not, then it'll deactivate the game. And if you are, then you can keep going. So it's that would be kind of like Netflix. That that would be the ideal scenario. So you can download the game and you don't have to stream it, but also they have a way of knowing whether you're an active paying member. And so you can't just download something and then unplug your console completely and get away with getting a bunch of free games. Mm-hmm. So that that to me is the the ideal scenario for all three platforms. Yeah. It's also interesting that this week there's been some discourse about whether people actually care about backwards compatibility which is a huge issue every time a new console comes out, always has been since the beginning of home gaming, really. People feel if you can't play an old console's game, they feel cheated. Mm -hmm. And this week, Ars Technica came out with some data based on Xbox Live information that showed that maybe only a small minority of subscribers actually play old Xbox games. And there was a a Sony exec who said something maybe sort of misguided Mm -hmm. about how why would you ever want to play old games? They look like crap, which is probably overly dismissive, but there is probably an element of truth to that in that I'd rather have backwards compatibility than not, but I also don't find myself going back all that often, at least to sort of intermediate generations, just because there's so much to keep up with. Mm. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the Jim Ryan, I think it was who's from Sony who said mm-hmm. that. He was talking specifically about Gran Turismo, and I guess yeah. I understand why you wouldn't want to go back and play an old Gran Turismo game, but there are so many games that have aged really well, especially in the Super Nintendo era. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I don't know. I saw that Ars Technica report as well, and I thought it was really interesting because it feels it's tough to reconcile that and the fact that after Microsoft announced that Call of Duty Black Ops 2 
2 would be backwards compatible on Xbox One, that game wound up charting in the top 10 sales for that month on MPD. So a lot of people were buying that game just to play it on Xbox One. So so I don't know. I, I mean, data has been tough to find on how many people are actually using backwards compatibility stuff and playing old games, which is too bad. I mean, I, I would love to see these companies. Uh, the other aspect of it is that like, even if games aren't backwards compatible games, old games aren't selling well and aren't being played a lot. It's still so important for these companies to preserve gaming history. Like I almost feel like game companies have this moral obligation to make their games playable and remain playable for as long as humanly possible because Mm -hmm. it's like with movies. I mean, when you lose, with any form of art, when you lose the ability to play something, it just feels like the the culture and the industry as a whole is just missing something. And and I feel like even if you your old games aren't selling super well. There is some sort of like higher obligation. Maybe this is kind of naive, but there is some sort of higher obligation to maintain that and and make your games available to people and just let people see history. Maybe we need some sort of like, like government-sponsored video game <laughs> preservation. Um, I know Frank Cifaldi, who's a, a right. former journalist, is, has yes, his whole former guest of ours and yours. Yes, yeah. yes, uh, great guy. He has uh, the video his video game preservation efforts, but. But that's mm-hmm. more about preserving documentation and old like games that that were never announced or never found or never played than it is about preserving history. And I, I do think that like Sony and Nintendo and Microsoft has have some obligation to make sure that the games that have been published on their older systems are playable in some way for years to come, even as those systems become harder and harder to find and harder and harder to play today. Um, mm-hmm. But man, I mean, anyone who hasn't played Suikoden 2, the PS1 game, just is <laughs> missing out. And um, I, I had a feeling you might bring that bring up, that up. Yeah, <laughs> at some course. point. I have to. My, <laughs> every podcast I'm ever on. <laughs> so closing question, next week is E3 week. You just did a full E3 preview podcast on split screen. So thanks. We don't have to do that. Everyone can go listen to it there. But are there just a a few things you could name that you are looking forward to or hoping for? You already mentioned Bioware maybe having a a big announcement coming, but any highlights you expect or want? And just generally, do you have any tips for how people should digest news coming out of E3 without getting incredibly angry about anything or (laughs) overhyped about anything that won't be out for three more years and who knows if it'll actually be good. Oh man. Okay. That's a lot of, a lot of <laughs> ground to tackle right yeah. here. Okay. So the games I am most excited about, um, I think number one is Super Mario Odyssey. Um, uh-huh. I cannot wait to get my hands on that thing. Number two is the new South Park game. Uh, mm-hmm. just cause I've, I'm a huge South Park fan. Um, inexplicably, I just love that, <laughs> that show and the first game and I'm excited for the second one. I'm hopeful for Nino Kuni 2 as well. And other, JRPGs that may or may not be there. As far as digesting news, I think that it's always fun to watch the press conferences. I've always been kind of uh, there's a there's a certain skepticism that uh, arises every year at E3 time where people are just like, oh, this this is just neon spectacle and marketing nonsense, and look at all these games that are showing trailers of things we'll never actually play and games that won't come out for years and years, such as the Final Fantasy VII remake, which I'm still convinced right. will never actually come out. Um, <laughs> 
so that's part of it. But I also kind of like to put the blinders on uh, once a year and just get suckered in by the hype just because it's fun to watch these press conferences and mm -hmm. see the surprises. And I always enjoy getting surprised by something cool. So that is if you're willing to get sucked into the hype a little bit. You can do that um, mm -hmm. and watch all the press conferences. But there are also other avenues. I mean, we're at Kotaku, we're going to be doing roundups of all of each press conference. So like after EA, you can just go on Kotaku and find everything that EA just announced at their press conference. Or like after Bethesda, everything Bethesda just announced at their press conference. So if you don't want to get too sucked into the hype of a live show, you can just do it that way. But yeah, be skeptical and assume that anything that is announced and doesn't have a release date will just never come out. <laughs> <laughs> and if it does have a release date, assume that it will misrelease that release date at least once. <laughs> and when it and, does, it will be your fault. Yes, that, that is totally <laughs> true. I will have delayed all of these games. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm sure we will do an E3 in review next week, too. So look forward to that. You can follow Jason all week and all the rest of time on Twitter at Jason Schreier. You can read him. At God Kotaku. forbid. I hope Twitter isn't around for the rest of the time. Man. <laughs> True. And you can buy his book or pre-order his book, Blood, Sweat and Pixels, which comes out September 5th. And we will be reading it. I'm sure we will be talking to you again at that time but if you were interested in the bioware story and the mass effect story it's like that but 10 times more so <laughs> go get it and, and fewer uh, anonymous sources more people speaking on the record that's which good. i prefer yeah because you've got the time delay i guess that that helps all right so always a pleasure to have you on and we will talk to you again later this year i'm sure thanks jason thanks guys see ya For a great shave at a great price, join Dollar Shave Club. New members get their first month of the Executive Razor and a tube of Dr. Carver's Shea Butter for only $5 with free shipping. After that, razors are just a few bucks a month. That's a $15 value for only 5 bucks. So get yours at dollarshaveclub.com slash achievement.